0: Uh, I was doing some research on on a book I was going to write, it was going to be my first book. On March 8th, woke up with this disease. And that was essentially the end of my journalism career. I mean, I got out of bed that morning, not really thinking anything was wrong. And within two or three steps from the bed, I, I went crashing into the wall because I lost my balance. Later in that day, go with the man I was seeing at the time who had asked me to marry him. And I was going to meet his father. We went to a restaurant and I, I couldn't understand what was being said. Strange sounds coming out of people's mouths. I went to the ladies room, actually lost consciousness. Had to be sort of carried out uh, of about 20 minutes after I was missed. But I lost consciousness two or three times on the first day. I could barely walk, et cetera. I mean, it was a very, very severe onset. And of course, I didn't get better. I just got worse and worse until I was, you know, totally bedridden and unable to walk. I think the first doctor I went to said, you know, I I, I don't really know what this is, I've seen it before, but you should be fine in about two years. You needn't touch base with me again. Uh, If in two years you're not better, give me a call. Two years just seemed like complete insanity. But at any rate, I, I remember about six months into this two year period, there was a day when I really thought I was dying. I called him and he was very angry. And he listened to me for a few minutes and then he interrupted me. And he said, you know, Hillary, I'm I'm really, you know, I asked you not to call me. And he said, I have seriously ill patients in my waiting room. I don't have time for this.
1: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of medical error interviews and i talk with patients and families physicians and advocates about medical error they share secrets stories and most importantly solutions medical error interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service remediescounseling.com a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses And other life matters a note of caution some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests hello humanity i'm scott simpson host of medical error podcasts and in this episode i chat with osler's web author and whistleblower hillary johnson hillary got up close and personal with both the heroes and villains inside the medical industry. Motivated by her journalistic sense of corrupt healthcare, and by her own experience with a chronic illness and medical errors, Hillary exposed the $150 million criminal diversion of research funding that prompted two federal investigations. In part one of this interview, Hillary shares about her early life and passion for writing, working for major magazines like Rolling Stone, and how a mysterious illness derailed her skyrocketing and bi-coastal career. If you would like to support the podcast, you can go to iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms and subscribe. You can also leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash interviews to become a monthly patron. Are you dealing with your own medical error, or living with a chronic illness, and need the support of an experienced counselor? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now here is my interview with journalist Hillary Johnson, and a note of caution, some people may be triggered by Hillary's experience with the medical system. And I like to sort of get a little bit of background. So where did you grow up? What was your childhood like?
0: Fun question. I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, I had a mixed childhood, I would say. Uh, Minneapolis is a fantastic city. It's full of lakes. Uh, There's so much to do in terms of, uh, you know, all the natural wonders of Minnesota, including uh, my father had a huge sailboat and we used to race the sailboat every summer uh, in these fantastic races that were held on these lakes. Um, in the winter, I skied, I, I uh, skated on all these lakes. I, I really had a marvelous childhood in many ways. Uh, It was marred by one thing. My parents divorced when I was about 12. And, you know, that was a very sad event. But um, I then went off to boarding school at my request and attended a very uh, quite elite girls' uh, boarding school in Massachusetts. It was really considered the best in the country. So uh, I'm always... uh, I'm always very happy when I think of that, that I had that incredible advantage uh, as a as a teenager uh, to attend that school. I later uh, went to the University of California at UC Berkeley and got an undergraduate degree in journalism, which was the only thing I ever wanted to do in my whole life. And then after that, I went to New York City to attend the Columbia, Columbia University uh, Graduate School of Journalism and got a master's. And yes, it was terribly redundant, but it was a wonderful introduction to New York City.
1: Wow. So uh, it sounds like you're a fairly athletic and healthy child.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely.
1: And very independent minded if you 're twelve years old and deciding you want to go off to boarding school
0: <laughs> well, it was about uh, the thing was it, 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 you might think I was fleeing the you know chaos of my parents divorce, but it really didn 't have much to do with that at all. I met uh, my very closest friend was from the East Coast. And one day she revealed to me that she would not be going on to the public high school. She would be going to a prep school. And I said, a prep school? What's that? And she explained what a prep school was. And I said, you mean you actually live there? And she said, yes, you live there for you know your high school years. And then you go on to college and so on. And uh, I got the literature from the school. I was really excited fascinated by the whole idea. And I looked at these beautiful pictures of, you know, teenage girls sitting under maple, beautiful maple trees uh, on this gorgeous, gorgeous campus in the Connecticut River Valley uh, of, uh, you know, sort of uh, upper Massachusetts. And it was so, so beautiful. And I just thought, Oh, I have to be part of this. I I have to go, and um, I was very ambitious and really wanted to learn how to, uh, you know, be a better writer and so on. I've been really obsessed with writing my whole childhood and adolescence. I had already written three novels by the time I graduated from. Grade school. Um, <laughs> wow! I was really, you know, writing was all that I ever cared about, really.
1: And where did that passion come from?
0: I'm not sure, um, but I think uh, I'm not completely sure. But I think that my mother had had a huge influence on me. She was a very, very literary woman. She constantly read uh two or three books a week and she would pass them on to me to read even very adult books um, she would give me to read when i was quite young and i she had she was actually quite a wonderful writer herself and uh it i think it i think it grew out of that i became very comfortable with the language and it seemed I had a a skill or or a uh, facility for language, the written language, and she encouraged it. And, you know, I'd write a a little novel and she'd take it around and show it to her friends and say, this is Hillary's first book, you know. And uh, I I think that really had an impact on me. And so it probably came from my mother.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you have her passion as well so you ended up in New York uh, after your master's and uh, then you entered the working world where did you sort of start
0: Um, gosh uh, the first several years of my career were were really uh, very fast-moving and interesting I uh, my first, very first job after Columbia was as a newspaper reporter for the Minneapolis Tribune. I just applied, and and I applied to many newspapers. They accepted me. I decided I would go back to Minneapolis and be a general assignment uh, reporter for them. Um, but it was so sexist. It was such a sexist environment. Uh, there were fifty. 52 news uh, reporters on staff, two of whom were women. And I really couldn't take it. I mean, I there, there weren't, in 1976 and 75, there were, the word sexual harassment, the phrase sexual harassment, didn't even exist. But I was being sexually harassed. And uh, I decided to leave. I, I applied to a magazine in Washington, D.C., called Congressional Quarterly, which covers Congress. And I was hired as a reporter, and uh, again, found tremendous sexual discrimination, sex discrimination, shall we say, uh, where I I saw men being uh, promoted into positions who had far fewer qualifications than I did. And I just said, "Well, <laughs> this sucks you know i I didn't really have words for what was happening. I just thought it was very unfair and I then applied for a, a job at um, a newspaper called women 's Wear daily, which in the in that era was a very very kind of very trendy magazine newspaper it was a daily newspaper that covered the women's fashion industry but it also covered cultural uh aspects of the world at large uh, because all of that sort of fed back into a feedback loop into the fashion world you know uh it was all part of a, the whole circle of fashion um you know who were the interesting writers photographers filmmakers etc and i was hired to to uh to do their cult their cultural coverage you know interviewing um interesting famous people of the day I mean anyone I wanted to interview really if uh, I got a green light from my editors I was able to do that so I interviewed writers I admired people like E.B. White and Erwin Shaw and Gore Vidal uh, business people like Malcolm Forbes um, uh, oh gosh uh, the Watergate prosecutor Sam Dash Probably a name no one remembers now, but, you know, uh, the the really fascinating people of sort of, of the hour, you know, uh, it was a great, great job. And I did that for a couple of years and then was hired for the new Life magazine, which had been dead for about seven years and they decided to revive it. And I was a news reporter at Life for four years. And then when I was about 31, I decided to uh, leave Life, uh, the magazine, and start doing freelance work. I was a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine for about a decade and uh, began writing for all all the major magazines in New York City. And it was a marvelous life. It was wonderful. Wow.
1: So when did your ill health intersect with your career?
0: Uh, Too soon, much too soon. Um, I had been going back and forth between New York City, where I had an apartment, obviously, and Los Angeles, where I also had an apartment. I mean, I was truly bicoastal which was a phrase of the day, you know, it was very chic to be by coastal or, you know, a lot of people aspired to it. Um, I was able to manage because I was doing a lot of magazine work in Los Angeles and it actually made sense for me to live half the year in LA because I had so much work. Um, anyway, I was in Los Angeles uh, for, uh, in March, of 1986, I was there to. Uh, I was doing some research on on a book I was going to write. It was going to be my first book, real book, not a book written in sixth grade. And uh, you know, I had a contract and a publisher and all that. And um, on March 8th, uh, I woke up with this disease, and that was essentially the end of my journalism career. Uh, as I had known it, it took about a year for editors who knew me, magazine editors, to get the message, um, because, you know, I, they kept calling me. Every day I would get phone calls from editors in New York saying, you know, can you do this story, can you do that, can you interview so-and-so, and it was very awkward. You know, I, I didn't want to believe that this was a permanent condition. Although there was a part of me in my gut that said, this is so bad, you are never going to recover from this. And I think a lot of people feel that intuitively, um, because with me, the manifestation was extremely neurological. In fact, I was very quickly diagnosed with encephalitis. You know, something profound like that, it's not... You know the disease is not in your foot. It's not in your hand. You can't look at it. It's in your mind. The very uh, fact that it's that it's affecting your brain makes it hard to even explain to people uh, what exactly is happening, especially when you're not sure yourself.
1: When you say uh, it was in your mind and in your brain, um, can you parse that a little bit between mental health and what I think you were experiencing?
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think mental health entered into the picture. I mean, I think I was perfectly mentally healthy. Um, I, I think uh, what I'm talking about are the, uh, the neurological deficits that began to uh, manifest immediately. I mean, I got out of bed that morning, not really... Thinking anything was wrong, and within two or three steps from the bed i I went crashing into the wall because I lost my balance later in that day actually i was that day uh, I was supposed to go with uh, the man I was seeing at the time who was had asked me to marry him, and I was going to meet his father that day. And we drove, um, we drove from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, and I remember I, I was so ill that I, I couldn't even lift my my head up. Uh, you know, I was reclined in the back and in, in, in the front seat, and I, I couldn't even lift my head up to look at him. Uh, at a very high fever and an extreme sore throat, you know, and we we went to a restaurant. And I I couldn't understand what was being said. It, the conversation was beyond me. I, it just was like strange sounds coming out of people's mouths. And I, I was so distraught. I, I went to the ladies room to sort of compose myself, actually lost consciousness and had to be sort of carried out uh, of, about 20 minutes after I was missed. Um, but I lost consciousness two or three times on the first day. I could barely walk, et cetera. I mean, it was a very, very severe onset. In terms of mental health, I wouldn't call it mental health, really. Obviously, I was very distraught. I couldn't imagine what what had happened. Um, I knew I was incredibly ill, but I couldn't imagine what it might be.
1: And so, your your boyfriend slash fiance, how was his reaction on this important day?
0: Well, I I don't think you know because he wasn't he was only observing me. He wasn't experiencing these phenomenal changes. Um, I think he was alarmed, but I, I don't think he was alarmed as he might as he probably should have been. And uh, you know, we struggled. Uh, we hadn't known each other all that long before, you know, just uh, maybe a year, and uh, suddenly to have this happen, um, and of course I didn't get better. I just got worse and worse until I was, you know, totally bedridden and unable to walk. And he took me to a doctor to see a doctor uh, one day, a specialist we had been referred to, and I couldn't even walk into the doctor's office. He had to carry me piggyback into the doctor's office and the doctor interestingly was turned out to be the frat brother of one of the young investigators who went to the incline village epidemic so these two got so there i was uh not even knowing i was going to write a book about this subject you know just terribly ill and not knowing that i would eventually meet his frat brother but this infectious disease specialist had actually knew a lot about this illness um, because he'd been talking to his former frat brother at the CDC. And he, this doctor in Los Angeles told me, I, I, I don't really have a name for what you have, but I've been seeing from 20 to 30 patients a month in my practice. With the identical symptoms that you have. And I thought that was really interesting um, and worrisome to me. Uh, I was eventually, after about three hours of exam, examinations, blood tests, et cetera, I was wheeled into the waiting room uh, in, a, in a wheelchair. My boyfriend. Uh, was had his head in his hands and he looked up and he was crying. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I thought they'd taken you to the hospital. Um, apparently he heard a, a siren or something and he thought that they were taking me to a hospital. I mean, he, rec- he recognized how serious this was, but I, I don't think he ever thought it was going to last forever. And uh, I'll just add that, of course, you know, after a year after two years of this severe illness, uh, he needed to move on and uh, the relationship ended and I moved back to New York and I have no blame for him whatsoever. He was a young man who had his whole life ahead of him. And uh, so, you know, I, I think he, I would think, I think he probably, these days, probably thinks, wow, I really dodged a bullet, you know, Um, and he did.
1: So you're befell by this illness, which they don't seem to know what's going on, but it's having a huge impact on your ability to do anything. What was the sort of trajectory until you got a diagnosis and when were the sort of medical era, the not so good experiences you had in there as well?
0: Uh, Well, uh, like anyone who's had this disease for any length of time, uh, whether it's a year, five years, 10 years, and in my case, 35 years, um, I could start with virtually the first doctor I ever saw. And take you through about 20 or 30 different scenarios of just outrageous behavior by doctors. I think the first doctor I went to said that, uh, said, you know, I, I, I don't really know what this is, I've seen it before, but you should be fine in about two years. Um, and you needn't touch base with me again. Uh, if in two years you're not better, give me a call. And you can imagine what two years sounds like to a 35-year-old woman who is, you know, sort of at the at the in the chronological peak of her a of her life, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, potentially not not the peak, but certainly on a very upward trajectory professionally. And two years just seemed like complete insanity Uh, i couldn't even imagine that i could be in that condition for two years and yet there was that little voice in my head that said not only two years but probably the rest of your life you know you cannot come back from this but at any rate i I remember about six months into this two-year period there was a day when I really thought I was dying. I can't remember what my symptoms were that day, but I called him, and he was very angry. And he listened to me for a few minutes, and then he interrupted me, and he said, you know, Hillary, I'm I'm really, you know, I asked you not to call me. And he said, I have seriously ill patients in my waiting room. I don't have time for this. It, it was as if what I was telling him and everything about, me and my illness were of, of, of so little import. Very shocking. I, I hung up the phone and I just thought, wow, I am really alone in this. I am really alone. I, I, I should say that one day, the man I was living with at that time, I was still in LA, uh, came home and with a copy of the LA Times and he pointed out an article in it, which was uh, a, a, an LA Times journalist had gone to Incline Village, Nevada, uh, in, in the aftermath of the CDC's investigation. And uh, it,
1: for the folks who aren't familiar with the whole Incline Village uh, history, can you give a, a sort of a brief synopsis of what that was about?
0: People who are not familiar with that story uh, in 1984, there began in a very exclusive kind of high roller, uh, hot, tony, uh, very rich enclave, uh, a little town in Nevada called Incline Village, right at the base of Lake Tahoe, a very beautiful, beautiful place, scenic, pristine, uh, the last place you'd expect an infectious uh, outbreak of a disease to occur and i'll get back to that in word infectious in a minute if you want to pursue that um uh there was an outbreak of what is very likely was me in in that town um a very large percentage of people fell ill. I'm, I'm not quite sure of the percentage, but it's a small town and ultimately perhaps 300 people fell ill, uh, maybe 280, 80, probably 300 and possibly many more who never were diagnosed or never uh, went in to see uh, the doctors who were identifying this. There were about five or six doctors in this little town, uh, but there were only two truly serious, very well-educated, very smart doctors, very sophisticated, sophisticated training, especially for a small town. And their names were Paul Cheney and Dan Peterson. And they were both absolutely, especially Paul Cheney, obsessed with this development and they both knew a lot about infectious disease and uh, they were incredibly impressed by how sick their patients were. And anyway, the uh, the outbreak got a lot of publicity. I'm not sure why, it might've been the LA Times article which first alerted the mainstream media to, to this. And uh, the CDC in the United States has a mandate to go after inf- outbreaks of infectious disease. And I will just say, you know, as an aside, that I later found out that the CDC had been getting calls about outbreaks of this disease from all over the United States and all over the world for quite a quite a long time before Incline Village occurred. And so they knew about this disease. And uh, they simply did not want to believe it was a disease. They didn't want to believe it was a coherent entity. They considered it hysteria. Uh, they, They actually felt, and I know this because I wrote a book about it and I interviewed all of these people at the CDC for over a period of years, And when they uh, heard about Incline Village, Nevada, and realized it was getting a lot of of press, they decided that they would go out there and sort of plant their flag, so to speak, in Nevada, and say, and be able to sort of say, this is it folks, we looked at this disease, We we, it was hysteria, there was no disease, and we want to put. They really wanted to put this disease to bed once and for all, and uh, so it was a very political move by the CDC. They sent an incredibly inexperienced investigator along with a sort of experienced investigator. Uh, this the latter stayed about five days, and he did not examine any patients. So the, the less experienced of the two investigators sent out by the Centers for Disease Control stayed 10 days, and he did examine a few patients, but unwillingly. I remember the doctors, particularly Paul Cheney, who was one of the two doctors who recognized the outbreak, telling me that Uh, this particular investigator, Gary Holmes, had uh, reluctantly seen patients. He far preferred simply reviewing charts in the office. He really didn't want to meet patients. And of course, I also interviewed uh, numerous patients, including all of the patients that were uh, seen. And they told me with great dismay that they felt they were practically imposing on on this guy. Uh, he, he was so uninterested in what they were telling him. Um, he seemed to brush it all off. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I found out, as, you know, the year or two longer that I talked to people at the CDC in the late 80s, that they had been receiving... Uh, reports of this disease uh, probably for quite a few years so this disease had already begun to spread throughout the United States especially I think on the coasts you know the big cities New York uh, Boston um, um, Los Angeles San Francisco San Francisco and LA were just uh, seething with this illness when I fell ill in 1986. And so, you know, the Incline Village epidemic is not ground zero. Uh, People who read my book, who come away with that sense, it's really kind of a misreading of the book. The importance of Incline Village was that The CDC had a chance to go out and really, really find out what this disease was and do some very serious science there. And they didn't do that. Instead, they chose it as the place where they were going to kill this disease. They were, you know, they never believed in it, they were sick of getting calls describing outbreaks them and from individual patients and individual doctors. So uh, it's, you know, the disease was quite widespread uh, or beginning a very widespread by the time Incline Village, uh, you know, was recognized as having this outbreak. And it was just a miracle of miracles that these two doctors, Paul Chaney and David and uh, Dan Peterson, happened to be so well-trained for uh, doctors working in the small town in Nevada. They they were just uh, very sophisticated, well-trained doctors.
1: Why do you think the CDC uh, didn't react as if this was a biological illness and instead took the hysteria approach?
0: Well, that's a good question and there could be several answers. Uh, one sort of uh, off-the-cuff answer, uh, which may not be the real answer, but it is certainly uh, a legitimate guess, is that because so many of the, the patients were women, um, they fell into the Old-fashioned thinking that because they they couldn't seem to pin down a causative agent, they decided that it must be some kind of psychological manifestation of hysteria. Except that, of course, there there were men who were ill as well. So that answer doesn't completely explain everything. Uh, there's an even more cynical explanation that I think could be uh, acceptable, which is that what was going on at the time of the Incline Village epidemic uh, in 84, 85? AIDS, right? There was a massive, massive concern, you could say hysteria, about AIDS, and uh, appropriately so, of course. I'm not diminishing that. Uh, whatsoever, I never would, but I do think that on some level it's possible that the that the United States government uh, really couldn't even bear or handle the idea of yet another infectious disease. And you now I I always talk about this about ME as as an infectious disease if if you believe that the disease we're talking about today is the disease that was first seen in 1934 in los angeles uh, then it's the same disease and if you look at the old old papers from those those decades there wasn't a single speculation that, that, that this was a psychosomatic condition uh every single investigator who looked at those outbreaks um was impressed that this was a a transmissible disease and certainly it's acted there's no other rational explanation for why the disease would suddenly explode um and and start uh spreading as as far and wide as it did with an estimate of Potentially 20 million people sick today around the world. Uh, You know, this used to be a formerly very obscure disease that hardly anyone knew about. But in addition to that, you know, the the US government, um, if you want to get really cynical, probably knew that this was an infectious disease based on the immunology. You know, one of the first uh, biological findings in terms of the immunology in ME, in contemporary ME, let's call it, was uh, extremely low natural killer cell function. And I I just happened to be rereading that paper, which was published in 1992, um, about low natural killer cell syndrome, it was being called. Uh, in Japan at that time and it was a very outstanding finding and in that paper it says that you you only see natural killer cell deficiencies in two situations cancer and infection and if you you know accept that uh, ME patients don't have cancer although some of them eventually do develop it then what's the other option? Infection. Uh, there are many, many uh, examples I could give you of the kind of immunological uh, research that has just almost screamed infection. And the fact that it happened concurrently with AIDS, uh, this explosion of this disease, as I think is, I think, a very important. Uh, Clue, I I don't know what the answer is, but I think it needs to be examined.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So just sort of getting back to the CDC, so you mentioned misogyny as a potential factor, the sort of explosion at that same time of AIDS and maybe there was fear of having to deal with this other big epidemic and so sort of shutting it down. Just the other day I was reading about Lyme, Lyme testing and how there's two sort of sets of uh, physician groups. One is highly connected to the insurance group and those uh, group of doctors uh, don't really or don't Acknowledge that there can be chronic Lyme infection. So I'm wondering if there's also a potential insurance influence on why the CDC and ME have been so psychologized.
0: Wow, what a great question. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I don't really. Now some may call me naive. I, I don't really necessarily see a connection. You know, I take that back. I take back what I haven't said yet, which is I was gonna say I don't really see a connection between the insurance industry and say the Centers for Disease Control. Um, you know, I, I don't I was gonna say that I don't think concerns about the disability insurance industry are uppermost in the CDC's mind and uh, scientists at the CDC's mind. minds. But I, I will say as regards this disease, that was not true. There was concern uh, at the CDC about uh, long-term disability payouts. If they were to give credence to this disease I mean and and the reason I know this is because I through the Freedom of Information Act years ago I acquired the uh, entire cache of letters that were at that time pre-internet were snail mail letters you know um, hard copy written out people's thoughts there were there was a small cabal of about you know, uh, five to 10 scientists who worked with uh, the notorious Gary Holmes, who I mentioned earlier, uh, to come up with a name for this disease. Now, uh, if, just in case anybody wonders, they did consider myalgic encephalomyelitis. They actually considered it and then they ruled it out because they felt that it implied that this was a medical, organic, real disease and they didn't want to do that they you know it's very clear in these letters oh no we can't do that because we don't really know we're not really sure this may turn out to be psychiatric therefore let's let's do away with with myalgic encephalomyelitis Um, and they did and they ultimately you know they were thinking about oh chronic mononucleosis Etc. But but the all-time favorite, and I think this was introduced by Stephen Strauss of the NIH, who was a participant in the naming process, uh, was chronic fatigue syndrome, because it, it, as they all agreed happily uh, that they agreed that this did not imply that it was an infectious disease therefore there would be no public panic it did not imply that it was catching you know you can't catch yuppie burnout right uh it's the fault of the people who have the disease um i remember discussing this name with a guy named walter gunn at, at the cdc during those years, um, and he's he he was a former psychologist, and he said, you know, you really couldn't come up with a, any any three words combined uh, that could inspire more hatred of people with this disease. He said the the word chronic uh, has a has an extremely negative connotation. Uh, psychologically Uh, fatigue of course is so nonspecific and it sounds like what everybody else has and syndrome is also a very negative word Um, it just has people just don't like the word syndrome so you put all these three words together and look what happened you know people who had who had this me were renamed as having chronic fatigue syndrome and they became the subject of tremendous ridicule, uh, dislike, uh, disgust even. Uh, they were outcasts. And so that the name had a, had a, you know, I don't have to tell you, it had an incredibly powerful impact. Now, one person who was involved in that naming uh, process was Anthony Komaroff at Harvard, he alone among all else involved, has actually apologized and more than once. Uh, and he claims that at the time he did not foresee the impact uh, that the name would have and how damaging it would be. You know, maybe. Uh, but uh no one else has apologized and in fact no one even wants to, to. No one even wants to fess up to the fact that they were involved in that. And uh, uh, at least two of the people involved, Steven Strauss and a doctor named Nelson Gantz, uh, who practiced on Long Island, uh, are both dead. They also tried to engage. Uh, Gary Holmes tried to engage a very famous infectious disease specialist. At, uh, who was then at Harvard? He may still be, although I'm sure he is probably emeritus. His name was Elliot Keefe, very, very respected, you know, world world known, and he was participating in this naming process for a while, uh, but when they settled on the word on, on the phrase chronic fatigue syndrome, he. Uh, he wrote them a, a letter of complete contempt, saying, look, you guys, I don't even want to be involved in this anymore. He said, whatever you're doing, uh, I, I don't like it. And he said, if you, he said, uh, he, he he asked them, are you trying to create yet another psychological uh, syndrome like uh you know, attention deficit disorder or paranoia or schizophrenia or something. In other words, he saw, it, he saw the name for what it was. You know, it was a very weighted and uh, denigrating name that could more likely be interpreted as a psychiatric problem than a medical problem.
1: So we can see that, uh, and I took you on this tangent from your own personal story into the incline village area, but the other thing I was going to say is that even though I've taken you on this tangent, um, and you mentioned that you you, uh, wrote a book about this for the folks who are listening, what's the name of your book about the incline village?
0: Okay. Well, the book is called Osler's Web, Inside the Labyrinth of the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome epidemic and I have to apologize that you know I was really forced to use the the phrase chronic fatigue syndrome in my title it was 1995 when we had to create a title for the book and uh, no one no one even most patients hadn't even heard of myalgic encephalomyelitis Uh, so in order to sell the book if we had said myalgic encephalomyelitis, it would have been written off as a medical textbook or something. And you know, my the audience I expected that would be interested in this book would be an audience that liked to read investigative journalism uh, about government malfeasance. And uh, I was wrong. You know, the only people who were truly interested Were people who had the disease, Um, so you know, it wasn't really written for people who had the disease. I wanted to inform, you know, I'm a journalist. I wanted to inform the rest of the world. I I I knew that people with the disease already knew what I was talking about, Um, but at any rate, it was, uh, gosh, I spent ten years writing it. It was a total nightmare. I was very ill while I was writing it, Uh, very poor. I was living on $700 a month, if you can imagine, for a decade. And uh, it was utterly a horrible experience. And I, I, you know, looking back at my life now from my grand old age, I don't think I would have done it, uh, actually, but I did write the book, it does exist and it's available on Amazon. I get no money from sales of books on Amazon. Um, I received no royalties from the book. Uh, I never made a penny from from the book. But uh, that's typical writer's wine. So just, you know, writers never make any money, uh, contrary to belief.
1: So going back to your own personal story, uh, we got sidelined to the Inclined Village when uh, the partner that you were living with at the time came home, and I think it had an article where it mentioned the Inclined Village. I mean, you would just been speaking about how uh, the doctor that you had seen said, I don't know what's wrong with you, call me back in two years. You called him up uh, because you were feeling like death, and he chastised you.
0: Yeah, he told me to... Uh, bug off basically and but a few months later I was lying in bed feeling like Jesus on the cross you know I felt like my whole body was in flames I, I I thought this must I must be dying this must be death I made a call to the doctor and he got on the phone and he was he was angry before I even started talking Uh I never even got a chance to tell him what my symptoms were or anything. He just said, uh, you know, Miss Johnson, I have very seriously ill patients in my waiting room. And I do not have time for this. And uh, that was that. And to talk about despair, you know. It was just, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that it's... <clears throat> changed radically for people in 2019 i think what's different um, is that the big difference and it's so obvious i hardly need say it uh, the biggest difference uh, maybe the only difference is social media you know twitter podcasts uh facebook etc there are obviously opportunities for a lot of abuse and you know we see patients fighting with each other and so on and that's fine you know i think healthy debate is is a good thing Uh, but my point is is that i I don't think patients feel as isolated anymore Um, You know, in in the 80s, when you got this disease, I mean, I remember being at the CDC doing interviews and, you know, feeling like I was having a heart attack and a stroke at the same time, (laughs) you know, listening to these CDC scientists telling me that this was a disease of hysterical women, you know. And uh, having to just sit there and nod politely and take notes and uh, stay cool, <laughs> calm, collect um, and collected. Um, and one of them, who was in, in the supervisor of the two guys who went to this to incline, uh, he actually, when I was sitting in my office, in when I was sitting in his office, he once uh, he, he was talking to somebody on the phone about the disease apparently I, i'm not sure who who he was talking to but another another cdc official or something and he said yes we have one here live and in captivity and he, of course he was referring to, to me because he looked right at me and you know in other words I, I was i was you know reduced to an animal alive and in captivity uh, and then he went on to say, you know, I think we should call this the Hillary Johnson disease. And the point of, of that is simply that uh, he was trying to make this uh, not so subtle point to me that uh, this was a very rare, you know, unusual condition, that there was no outbreak or epidemic, uh, that you could name it after one, one individual patient. and. Uh, that would be fine because there just wasn't very much of it. And, uh, of course, he was, you know, he was trying to get under my skin. I, I knew that. And he, uh, in fact, he banned me, ultimately, from, from the agency. Um, of course, I didn't leave. I just sat in the lobby and uh, turned that into my office. And, you know, they had a lot of public telephones sitting in the lobby, and I used to, I used to, I kind of appropriated one of the phones and I had all my files and my, tele, my personal telephone book with me and so on. And I would just, you know, I just went through the CDC phone book and called up scientists I thought would be interesting to talk to about this and just identified myself as Hillary Johnson, a journalist writing a book. And, you know, could I interview them? And they would say, well, when do you want to see me? And I'd say, you you name the time. They didn't know I was in the lobby. So, uh, you know, and they would always say, well, come see me at 7 in the morning before I start work. And just be, okay, okay, I'll do that. Oh, my God, 7 in the morning. That was really rough. But uh, so I continued to interview people at the CDC for quite some time after I had been, quote, banned. uh, But got a lot of very, very interesting information during that time
1: and then personally uh, so at this point you still oh no I guess you do know that you have me at this point
0: oh yes I mean do you know I I realized very very quickly uh, I, I think because I went to that doctor who said you know I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this all the time I'm seeing this I'm seeing 15 to 20 30 patients who have all your symptoms. And he was quite interested at that time uh, that I saw him. But months later, you know, he'd probably been in touch with his frat brother, uh, John Kaplan, who was one of the guys who went to Incline, who gave him the lowdown on the disease. You know, the disease is bullshit. It's not real. I, I don't know. That's I'm just guessing. I have no idea why he lost interest or seemed so angry. But uh, it was when I... Uh, let me explain that I was ill for about six months and barely able to walk, or lift my head off a, a pillow, you know, just sleeping around the clock. It was very... And I'd already been diagnosed with encephalitis um, by... Uh, a doctor earlier. And uh, I was just terribly ill, but uh, editors in New York, and I was living in LA, at et- New York magazine editors were calling me almost every day saying, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you, can you interview so-and-so? And of course, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell them how ill I was. It was just, you know, if you're a freelance independent contractor, you don't want to, you don't want to put the word out that you're, you know, you're deathly ill. Uh, so I would, I would just say, you know, I'm not feeling well right now. Um, I'll have to pass on that one. And, but, you know, I would get these calls daily. And after about six months, uh, Editors started to sort of fall off. I didn't get that many phone calls, and but I did keep getting calls from my editor at Rolling Stone, where I was a contributing editor, and you know he expected me to be doing pieces for them, and uh, I kept turning him down and turning him down, and but after I read uh, an article in the LA Times that I mentioned, uh, it occurred to me that what I was suffering from, and what so many other people in Los Angeles appeared to be suffering from, was the same disease that what that had occurred in Incline Village that was causing uh, so much interest at the CDC or feigned interest, shall we say? And uh, at that point, you know, I was very much. Uh, still in my journalists uh, mode, I'd been a journalist for 15, 16 years by then. And I called my editor at Rolling Stone and told him about the LA Times article and just to sort of see how, what he would think. And he said, and I said, you know, Bob, I think, I think I have the same disease. And I think a lot of people in LA do. And I, I, I think this might be a story a big story and he said I think it's a big story too uh, and he said I, I I, would like you to explore this and uh, see what you come up with you know just do some digging around so as ill as I was it's just ridiculous to imagine now uh, I began to make phone calls I called the the woman who was in charge of epidemiology for LA County and began talking to her about this disease. And before I could really get very far into it, she interrupted me and said, we are getting more phone calls about the disease you're talking about than we are getting about AIDS or any other disease. And we're getting calls from doctors, patients. She said, some of these calls are breaking my heart. I cannot believe you know how sick these people are, and she said, We're very concerned in this department that we may have another tiger by the tail, meaning there may be a second epidemic going on. And she said, But we can't do a thing about it, we can't, we don't have a single person we can assign to this because everybody's working on AIDS, and I can't take anybody off AIDS. But that was my first clue that. My intuition was correct that this was a very big story, and then ultimately I managed to get to Incline Village somehow. It was crazy, but uh, and I met Paul Cheney and must have talked to him over a, a day for probably five hours, and I realized at that moment that my life was about to change because Paul Cheney. Was such an inspirational figure. He was utterly brilliant. Uh, he, there was something very unusual about him. And indeed, you know, he had a PhD in nuclear physics before he became a doctor. He was an unbelievably bright and uh, guy who had. Uh, done so much research into this disease before I even got, before I even talked to him. I mean, it was amazing how much he knew about this disease already. Uh, I think he had almost solved the disease before, back in 1987, when I first met him, or, I'm sorry, 86. It's, you know, so much of what he had under, begun to understand about this disease and he had called EBV experts all over the world uh, by then. He had talked to so many scientists. He'd done so much investigation on his own time. Uh, he knew an incredible amount of, of uh, scientific medical information about this disease. And I re- when I say I realized my life was about to change, I, I just knew that uh, Paul Cheney, uh, was an extraordinary figure, and that he was worthy of of a book, and that a book could about this disease could be sort of built around Paul Cheney. Um, in the end, he was still always he was always, for me, the primary figure and my inspiration. and i uh, but the story, as I stuck with it, just got bigger and bigger and wider and wider uh, you know so uh, but Paul was really my uh, I'm not sure what the name for it is uh, I'm sure there's a name for what Paul was but he was sort of my light source uh, while I was working on this book and uh I have hundreds of hours of taped interviews with, with Paul, and of course, eventually, Dan Peterson, uh, who initially didn't didn't want to interview me. I, I, his wife had told him that if he talked to another reporter, she would leave him. And so when I came on the scene, it was sort of like, no, 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 I'm not going to talk to you. I persuaded him to at least go out and have a cup of coffee and when he found out we talked about all sorts of things but when he found out that i was a native minnesotan he completely relaxed and he said oh well you know then i can talk to you he was from he was from wisconsin and it was like two old midwesterners you know uh i i wasn't the fancy uh, new york journalist anymore i was just a girl from minnesota as far as dan was concerned so he trusted me and so you know we we also became um you know i he also became another i would say light source uh for me
1: oh so you're really getting to uh the beating heart of where all the research and everything was going on around me at that time Uh, and so your personal experiences with uh physicians trying to get your own health care Tell me some of those.
0: Okay, uh, I would say the most outrageous was uh, a cardiologist who happened to be a woman, also interestingly. But I, I found that that women doctors, because they're trained along with men, often are like men. they uh, they you know you sort of hope they'll be a little different, but no often, most often they're not. Uh, And this one certainly was no exception. Uh, But I had thyroid cancer in 2008. I guess, let's see, I I can't really do the math, but I think I'd been ill for um, about uh, 20 years by then, perhaps. And so it wasn't a surprise to me. And it was like a head cold. You know, it was no big deal. I mean, when I heard the word cancer, uh, I think most people freak out and go, "Oh my God, I'm going to die." For me, it was just, "Oh, uh, okay, so you know, let's deal with that." It was no biggie. Um, How come? I, why was yeah. I not frightened? Yeah. Um, that 's a good question. It just seemed like given what i 've been through already in the last twenty years in terms of my my physical health, um, I almost expected I would get cancer someday, and I, I still in fact now think that I probably will get an additional cancer. Um, i I think that uh, I think that whatever virus causes this disease is a cancer promoter at, at minimum. It may also like HPV. It may actually cause cancers. Um, uh, there's a big, you know, story to be told about the relationship between this disease and uh, lymphomas, leukemias, and all cancers, actually. But I'm getting um, off on a tangent to, Yeah, sorry, uh, I do that to you. Um, but why? I, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard to explain. I, I, I kind of, I remember. Sitting in my car uh, after I learned that 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 uh, the biopsy was positive for cancer, and almost feeling like laughing, realizing uh, that that I was completely unshaken. I just it was like okay, so I guess I'm going to have my thyroid removed now. The only thing that really frightened me was the fact that I would have to have anesthesia, which can be very uh, a difficult. It can be a problem uh, with people with ME, and I've forgotten why I used to know. I'm sure people listening to this are like yelling as to why, because they probably all know. But but there's there's a connection between uh, anesthesia and ME, and certain anesthesia uh, products are dangerous, and so on. And uh, so I was very, very concerned about that. Uh, the, that was the only thing that scared me, was that I was just gonna die from the anesthesia. But, uh, you know, I was kind of uh, ready to die. I'm afraid that's what having this disease does uh, for so many years, I've had it 35 years now. Uh, you're, you're so ill all the time, you can't even remember what it's like, what normal it is but you you just you go through so many phases and so many dramatic things can happen along the way uh that you you kind of expect you're surprised you're alive but getting back to this the cardiologist i mentioned anyone who has major surgery has to go through uh, has to have a cardiac workup so i went to a woman who uh, did a number of EKGs, and all of them were highly abnormal. You know, they said things like myocardia, ischemia, um, everything short of a heart attack, actually. And um, she said, "There is no way I'm going to approve you for surgery, given until I until I understand what has happened to your heart." And so I thought, okay. But meanwhile, uh, there was a death in my family and I flew to Los Angeles and I had a heart attack on the plane.
1: And that cliffhanger is the end of part one of my interview with journalist Hillary Johnson. Stay tuned for part two of my interview with Hillary, where she pulls no punches about the corruption and incompetence in the healthcare industry. Are you in need of counseling for your own experience with medical error or living with a chronic illness or LGBT issues? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. You can support the podcast in multiple ways. You can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. And please leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medicalerrorinterviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.